Well, today we want to continue our study at First Peter. Surprised, right, that we're continuing our study? But we're going to talk today, we're going to see the pattern here that Peter's giving to the church that he's preaching to in Asia Minor. Remember, this church is scattered all around the area there because of persecution and because of severe trouble that they've been given and suffering because of the name of Christ. And there are times in our lives today, too, I know that you and I both feel persecution. Maybe not the way those in other parts of the world are feeling it and seeing it, or maybe not the way these people in Peter's day were seeing it, but we have our own level of persecution in our jobs, in our health, in our family situations. And there are times where it just may not seem that our calling out to God is doing any good. Can I be honest here? Has anybody here prayed and felt like your prayers have never gone below, below the ceiling? Can anybody agree with me here? Yeah. There are times that are like that, aren't they? But you've got to recognize that God still hears. And he's still concerned, even though that maybe we're not feeling like we're being responded to. We don't always feel like God has really chosen us or that we're very special to him. But today I want to talk about what it means to be a chosen and a precious people in the eyes of God our Father. Our text today is in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9 and going through verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just ask you today that you would make this passage alive. Holy Spirit, give us revelation knowledge as only you can. Let, us, let our hearts be open to hear and let our voices be willing to speak what you would have us to hear today in Jesus' name. Amen. To understand... Peter's terminology here, how, how he's writing that being a chosen people, we have to recognize that Peter is writing to the early Jewish Christians that are very familiar with the history of their people. Remember, these are Jewish people, and they know that their forefathers were at one time, at one time enslaved in Egypt, and they were enslaved there for 400 years, and that God miraculously delivered them through mighty miracles both in Egypt and then on the way out of Egypt, how he led them through the Red Sea and then how they had the 40 years of wandering in the desert and how God provided for them t day after day and provision after provision for those 40 years and, and how that even in the midst of all that, they forgot how precious they were. They forgot that they were God's chosen people by the way they acted towards God and how they rebelled towards God. So they all recognize that. So Peter has an audience that understands clearly what he's talking about here when he says, you were once a people and now you're not a people. You were once um, obedient and you were, then you were not obedient. And, and so he under, they understood clearly 
his terminology. We need to recognize then that we need to be reminded too that God has chosen us. Maybe not the way the Jewish people were chosen to, and, be, and delivered out of Egypt. We're Gentiles, but God still chose us. And even though we might feel forgotten by God, God still sees us as precious. He still loves us, and he still has a plan for us. And he's going to get us through our desert like he delivered the people of Israel through their desert. To see this, we really need to look at, go back a few uh, verses in chapter 2. So to see the contrast here of verse 9, we need to look back at verses 7 and 8. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 gives us a contrast to verse 9. Let's go back and read those two verses. Now to you who believe... This stone, remember we talked about the precious cornerstone who is Jesus? This precious stone, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, in other words, to those that have rejected Christ or the cornerstone, the stone the builders rejected has still become the cornerstone. I, I, instead, I, still, I put the word still in because it, just because somebody rejects who Jesus is, it doesn't make him not the cornerstone. He's still the cornerstone. Even though that many people have rejected him, he's still who he is. He hasn't changed a bit because the majority of people have rejected him. So the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also why, what they were destined for. So the people that reject Christ as the rock of salvation, they're choosing for themselves destruction. They're choosing destruction because they've rejected the cornerstone. They stumble and trip over this precious cornerstone of God's salvation that God so freely gave to all of us. But because they reject it, now that stone becomes a stumbling block for them rather than a rock of salvation. They stumble over it because they're disobedient to the message. Not a good thing. Then verse 9 comes, and this is what makes this so powerful now. When we recognize that verse 9 tells us that we have a different destination because of our choice. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Man, think of that that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Hmm. Peter's saying here, for those that accept the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that accept it, God is making you a chosen people, a precious people, a special possession. Isn't that cool that God just doesn't look at us as one of a number? He sees you as a special possession. You personally are a special possession of God. He's chosen you specifically. Wow. Amen. Isn't that awesome to think that God loves us so much that he chooses us that way? And then he thinks we're special. I like to be special, don't you? And then Peter says that he goes on and says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and in his wonderful light. That you may declare the praises. We, just have, we were just doing that through our praise and worship. 
Whenever we have an opportunity to declare the praises of the Lord, we need to because we're a special possession. What does it mean here to you to be a special, chosen by God possession? Isn't that just cool? Can you just embrace that for me? Can you think about that? Can you, you grasp that and put that in your thought a little bit? It's hard, to, it's hard to really appreciate it, isn't it? What does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be chosen? Chosen means to be selected versus being rejected. To be selected rather than being rejected. When I read this, I went back immediately to my childhood days um, at the playground where you got all your buddies, you go for recess and you're going to play softball or play football or whatever and you got to choose sides. So somehow there's a pecking order that somebody's the captain, you have two captains and everybody else line up and now you're going to pick the teams. And now you say, all right, I pick Joe, I pick Bill, I pick Peter, you pick him and you pick him. And, you know, and the fear is to be the last guy selected. You don't want to be the last one standing there. <laughs> you want to be chosen first. You want to be the best on the team. You want to be the first one. You want to be the one they fight over. Not the guy they say, all right, well, <laughs> you get Joey. <laughs> you, you get him. You know? and, well, we don't want to be that person. We don't want to be the last pick. But recognize here that that's not the way God is choosing his team today. God is not choosing his team and you're the last pick. No. You may feel the lowliest of the low. You may feel the least of the least. But that in many ways qualifies you to be the first pick. Amen? It's the one that says, I'm all in, God, and I'm all for you, and nobody can be better than me. Pick me first. Probably is the guy at the, at the end of the line. <laughs> so if, don't go by your feelings here. Just go by your obedience. But each one of us, of us today is a special choice of God. We're special. And God's chosen you to be a part of his team, and he's depending on you to do your part as part of the team. Think of this. You choose somebody to be in your team, and then you want him to... If you choose him because he's got a great arm and he's going to be the quarterback, you want to make sure that he does his job, right? You want to make sure that you chose the right guy for the right job. And, and Jesus is choosing, choosing you and I, and now he's expecting us to accept our role of being chosen and then to do our part. I've heard the quote that your talent is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God. God gifts you with a certain ability of talents. Now, your gift to God is what are you doing with them? How are you using your talents back for him is your gift to him. And that's one of the meanings that we can get out of this passage to be chosen by God, that, that we would see our rightful place of service in this kingdom, that we would wholly work for him with passion and with energy and with focus and with commitment. Now, wouldn't it be a shame for us to get to heaven and only to hear God say, Mike, I, cho I chose you, and I gifted you with this special gifting, and I placed you in Charlevoix, and I put you in Centerpoint Assembly to take the role of whatever it is, you name it, and you didn't respond to me, 
And you didn't use the gift that I gave you. Therefore, isn't that, wouldn't that be a shame to hear God say that to you? I chose you. I gifted you. I put you in a place. I grounded you in a good church. I grounded you in a good community. And I was waiting for you to pick up the gift and use it. And you chose not to. Can that help us understand a little bit what it means to be chosen by God? That he is choosing us and that he's expecting us to do, to use the gift that he's given us? Daniel Fuller, co-founder of Fuller Theological Seminary, quoted this. How could we enjoy heaven if during our lifetime on earth we had used most of our time, treasure, and talents for ourselves? It's, it's interesting to think about it that way. How could I enjoy heaven when I know that I've used most of my time, treasures, and talents for my own selfish purposes? Wow. That's one way to look at being chosen. There's other ways to look at this same passage, that God sees us as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, let me ask you this morning, think with me. Put your thinking caps on and help me out here. What does it mean to you when God says that you're chosen? Give me some words. What does it mean when God says, I choose you? Special. Anything else? Separate. You're separate? Okay. Favored? There's a purpose. Yeah. Okay. Included. A masterpiece. Special and esteemed. Okay, what does it mean when you hear, uh, when he says that I make you a royal priesthood? What does that make you think? I hear the head, not the tail. A royal priesthood. What's that mean? What about a holy nation? I make you a holy nation. What does that mean? Act like it? <laughs> okay. Set apart? We are a priest, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like the Old Testament priests. What about when he says you're God's special possession? What does that mean? You see, I'm, I'm hoping that as we go through these words and we think this through, that we're making ourselves feel, first of all, included and part of the family, and that God includes us as part of his greater church, but I hope that it also makes us feel that we're a little bit more accountable to God because God has taken the time and the effort to choose us, to be a chosen royal priest, holy in nature and character, and seen as a, a special possession of God. I hope that it would give us a sense of purpose, as Don had said, that we have a purpose in our life to please him, to live for him, to choose him back. Yeah. How can we walk out of church today and live lives that are unholy, ungodly in our speech or our actions or in our conduct, unresponsive to the working of the gifts that God has given us, 
and treating this special relationship that God wants with us as not special when we see God purposely telling us what he thinks of us. Yeah. See, my prayer is here that we're presenting a challenge to all of us that our lifestyles need to match up with God's calling in our life. That we are matching our lifestyle up with what God thinks of us. As a chosen people, our response should be one of complete gratitude to God for his marvelous and all-encompassing choice and mercy so that we're special to God and that we are his special possession and that he's proud of us. And he could look at you and say, that's my special person and I'm proud of them. Yeah, they've made mistakes, but you know what? They've repented of them. Therefore, I see them no more. Now I just see my special child. Yeah. That goes on to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Then we continue on with what Peter's saying. He says, once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, the last part of this verse tells us that our relationship with God has changed. It's changed from a people that had not received mercy to a people that have received mercy. What does that mean? What does it mean to receive the mercy of God? Yeah, his forgiveness. This is the most important point here. This is what the Bible is all about, that God gives us something called mercy and grace that forgives us of our own unrighteousness and our own filthy rags, and he changes us to being a person that wasn't to a person that is, a people that weren't to a people that are God's people. And here's the thing that we need to recognize, that God extends mercy to every person he ever created. God is not a respecter of persons. Every person in this world, God extends his mercy to. Every person. No matter how bad, doesn't make a difference how bad they are or when they've lived or whatever, God extends mercy, his forgiveness of sins to every person. But what makes them different is the act of what? Receiving the mercy. Just because God extends it doesn't mean that it's given to you until you receive it. We must choose to receive the mercy of God, and, and that's what he had. Once you had not received mercy, it's not, he's not talking about, now, I didn't extend grace to you, and now I've extended grace to you. That's not what he's saying. He, he has extended grace all along. He said, but once you had not received mercy, but now you have. It's that act of us receiving, not the act of God giving. Because God is given to all people. But not all people receive. So now that we receive it, it's simply a matter of forgiveness of sins, that we receive that. The problem here in our society is that they don't understand mercy as forgiveness of sins. Rather, they confuse it with acceptance of sins. There's a big difference between forgiveness and acceptance. Many define mercy as acceptance, which means that now I accept my failures rather than being forgiven of my failures. There's a big difference here. Mercy to forgive means that I repent, and repent means that I turn away and that I don't repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again purposefully. That's what repenting means. We need to understand God's forgiveness must come with repentance. Repentance. 
Whereas acceptance, when I confuse God's mercy with just an acceptance of my sin, what that means, that's something totally different. That means that we see our sins, we recognize our sins, but rather than do away with them or rather than repent of them, what we really do is we're justifying them. And we're saying, yep, I have them. That's who I am. Yep, I have a bad temper. Yep, I have a filthy mouth. Yep, I I have these habits. Yep, I have these things. And rather than for me to repent of that and walk away from it, I'm saying God's mercy says I can accept that. And that when I accept that, I rationalize them just to be a human flaw. Oh, that's just the way I am. It's just the way I was created. It's just who we are. Oh, God understands my struggles with this. God God will forgive me. Well, I can tell you right now that that's not true. God will not just forgive you as you accept your sins. God only forgives you when you repent of your sins. Just the fact that you recognize that I have sins doesn't mean God has forgiven you until you say, God, I'm sorry, and I repent. That's the difference between acceptance and and, and, uh, and, um, uh, receiving God's mercy. Our society looks more at the acceptance of something that's not quite right, and they may see it as a sin, they may see it as not the norm, so rather, but rather than dealing with it and calling it out for what it is, what they'll do is they'll spin it away to justify it and to accept it as an alternative lifestyle. And so now, rather than saying, no, it's wrong to do that, it's wrong, no, they'll say, okay, well, let's figure out how I can accept it and how I can live with it. And that's an acceptance of God's mercy, but that's not a receiving of God's mercy. And we need to, take the, we need to go to the, to the nth degree here and receive it. Because we talked about last week, remember the, the, the six woes that Isaiah talked about in chapter 5? Well, three of them say this, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do you see that all over the world today, don't we? constantly seeing right is wrong and wrong is right. And then he says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny the justice to, to the innocent. See, can we just not stop here for a minute and realize that that's not the, that's not the response that God wants to his mercy? He's not asking us to accept it. He's asking us to receive it, to be forgiven of our sins. If our world would just get that, if we could just get that, we would, our, some of our problems would, would, would change because we wouldn't be just dealing with the acceptance, but we would truly be repenting. Jesus didn't go through everything he did on this world. He did not go through all the suffering that he had to go through so that we could take the approach of acceptance rather than forgiveness. This is really important, an important point to realize that Jesus paid the price. He went to the nth degree for us. And think about what he did so that we could become that precious people and how we are to um, live our lives appropriately. Peter goes on then in, in verse 11. He says, Dear friends, because of this acceptance or this receiving God's mercy, he says, Now that you've received it, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, I hope you can hear the urgency of, of what Peter's saying. Dear friends, first of all, he calls them friends. Dear friends, I love you guys. You guys are my friends. I urge you. I urge you. Do you, see, do you, do you hear the passion and the concern and the love here? This is not a judgment. This is not an anger. This is not a hate message. This is an urging because I love you so much. Guys, listen. 
I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. I urge you. I urge you to abstain. And I, and I hope that you, this is what you hear from this church, from this pulpit, that you hear the urging of a loving person, not an angry person, not one that is right and you're wrong. No, that we urging, we're urging us, we're urging ourselves so that we could receive the mercy of God, receive the forgiveness of it, what it means to us to leave, to leave our sin and that we would abstain from the things. See, to abstain from sinful desires must mean, first of all, that sin can be attractive. If there's an urgence to abstain from it, that must mean there must be some attractiveness to sin. Even though the sin leads to destruction, sin in itself can be inviting. So he's saying, I urge you to abstain from these desires, these desires to sin, because we have desires to sin, right? Sometimes it just feels good to tell somebody off. Sometimes it just feels good to do whatever you have to do to sin. It just feels good. But I'm telling you, Peter's saying, I urge you to abstain. I'm urging you to abstain because he says that these sinful desires wage war against your soul. Now, this is warfare. And understand that war is not pretty. There are no rules in warfare. This is not a petty little squirmish between friendly foes. Recognize that your enemy, our enemy collectively, the devil, hates us. I mean, you've got to recognize that he hates you. You cannot look at him as a gentle little buddy with little red hat and horns and a little pitchfork and he's a funny little comical character. He's not. He is an enemy of your soul and he's waging war against us every day to destroy us. And until I can get that picture in my mind, I'm never going to take him serious. I'm never going to take those little sins serious because if I take him as a friendly foe, then we're not going to really understand the seriousness of this war that we're waging. So we need to know that the devil hates you and that he's not going to spare any effort to deceive you and me, and he's going to try to destroy us. Remember, there are no rules he has to follow. Even God allows him to go a long way to destroy us. Even God allows him, because that is how we prove that we've received the mercy of God when we get pushed to the limits and we still are forgiven of our sins. We still choose to stay away from the sin. That's proving our love back to him. If God made it really easy, then how much proving is there really on our end to prove to God that we're in this thing really for the right reasons? So yeah, we are tested, and we are going to be tested in every way, shape, or form. It could be a health, it could be a job, it could be a family relationships, it could be lots of things. And this is not a mean God, even though it sounds mean or hard that God would have us to choose him with this kind of effort and required on our part, but it is the only way that we can truly prove to him that we're choosing him above all situations, that we have to go through the ringer sometimes. See, Jesus went through the ringer for us. He gave full commitment for us to go to Calvary, to um, be punished the way he was punished and tortured the way he was tortured, then to die the way he died. We have to recognize that this is everything in for Jesus. And the devil will get us to think that it's 
we don't have to do the same thing to receive his mercy. The devil will give us a common thinking, a common trick to think that you can receive the mercy of God and still remain in your sin. You can receive the mercy of God and still live the lifestyle you want to live. Now, I'm not trying to make it harder than what it is. Don't, don't misread what I'm trying to say here. I'm not trying to put, put rules on us. I'm not trying to put bondage on us. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to recognize the fact that Jesus had to go to the nth degree to save us, and it may very, very well require us to go to the nth degree to receive his mercy. Does that make sense? Am I, am I putting it hard? I don't want, I'm not putting it hard. I'm just trying to say it. So let, let's ask, let me ask you a question this way. How did Jesus die for our sin? How did he die? Was he assassinated with a bullet? Was he decapitated? Was it quick? Was it easy? See, he could have died easy and still died for us, right? They, they, they could have just taken a really sharp sword and taken one swipe across and cut off his head and he could have been died instantly with no pain. But that's not the way he died. He died on a cross. And it was ugly. And it was painful. And it took a long time. He was beaten first with a, with a whip of nine tails. Beaten, scourged. His back was torn open. He was spit upon. His beard was ripped out of his face. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He took a crown of thorns and jammed it on his head. Long thorns jammed it on his head, bleeding. Then, he made him, then, then they made him carry his cross. A heavy cross on his back, already ripped apart. Made him carry it. Then they made him lay down and he took nails and they pounded nails in his wrist and his feet. And then they put him on this cross and he let him hang there for hours. Six hours. All right, the point of all this is that it was an ugly, painful death. And I'm telling you, guys, sometimes it requires some ugly, painful things for us to receive his mercy. We, we, th- we make it too easy sometimes. I'm not trying to make it too hard. But at the same times, we think that God's grace just covers us without us having any sacrifice in the game. And I'm thinking that God says, no, I want you to abstain from sinful nature. I want you to abstain from it. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 through 10. Colossians chapter 3, Paul speaking now, different author, Paul speaking. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death. Let's use the same terminology here that Jesus died for us. Put to death. Take control of your fleshly nature and put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. Once you were a people. Once you weren't a people, right? Same thing. Once you weren't a people, now you are. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now, now that you've received God's mercy, now you must rid yourselves also of some other things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. You have put on a new self which has been renewed in your knowledge and image of its creator. See, this takes work. This takes work on our end to receive God's mercy. Now, we're not working to get saved. God's mercy is a free gift. But now that I've received it, I must die to my flesh. I must work not to let immoral things come in my mind. I must work not to let filthy language come out of my mouth. I must work that I don't slander people, that I don't gossip people. I must work at it. 
Because our natural flesh comes too easy if I don't kill it. Make sense? Yeah. And then he finally goes on to say, to finish this, mer- this, this, this message of urgent love. This is a love message to us. This is a message of love that God loves us so much that he wants the truth of God to be revealed so that we truly can receive the mercy of God. He goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, the final verse, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So that's what we talked about in Sunday school today, wasn't it, Dawn? We talked about how we have to live our lives in a broken world, uncompromised, but yet bathed in love for people. And this is even among those that are not choosing this, among the pagans. Jackie, if you'd come... We're going to have communion at the, at the end here, but I think it's important that we recognize that our relationship to Jesus and our lifestyle is being evaluated day by day. The pagans are watching us. And not only the pagans are watching us, but the religious are watching us. Those that proclaim to have a relationship with the Lord but maybe aren't really receiving God's mercy, but of accepting it, meaning that they've justified some things in their life, they're also watching us. And we need to live our lives in a way that brings glory to God in the midst of all this stuff. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Live in peace and be holy. See how they go together? I'm to live my life holy before people. Yet in peace, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without being holy, I can't see God. See to it that no one falls short of the mercy of, or the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defile many. We need to live to please God in peace with people, holy, uncompromised, as a people that are of God, not a people that were, but a people that are forgiven, not accepted, but forgiven. Jesus calls to us to a life without compromise today, but full of love. I can be uncompromised and still full of love. I don't have to be angry. And so I, I encourage us today as we, as we end this sermon and this message and we think about, well, how does this apply to me? How is Peter's message here applying to me? I would pray that we would look at it from the perspective of, God, you've put me in a, pers- in a, in a certain position at work or amongst my peers, and it's hard. I just want to be holy before you. I want to be pleasing before you. At the same time, I want to live a peaceful life amongst those. But I'm going to have to make a stand. I'm going to have to, first of all, make a stand in my life and I have to make sure that I crucify the flesh man in me because I can't allow the flesh man to rise up in me and then preach about it to others later. That's not going to help your cause and that's not going to help the kingdom of God's word, is it? So we need to do this through uncompromised forgiveness. We need to do this through repentance. We need to do this through Jesus saying, Father, I'm all in and I die to myself today. Would you pray with me? Close your eyes and just pray with me. 
Father, I pray that somehow this message would find its way into into the soft spot of my heart. That I would recognize that there are things that I need to some changes in my life. I need to take control of some things. And I pray, Lord, that I would be obedient to do that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that your spirit would work in me and do the surgery, do the work in my life. Lord, that I could crucify myself and receive your mercy, receive your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, can we just come together and come around the communion table and fellowship of the Lord's remembrance of his sacrifice for us? Amen. You know, we do this every, every month or so on a regular basis. But I'm going to invite someone here to tell me, to tell all of us, what is the blood or what is the cracker, what does the body of Christ mean to you? Somebody here would like to just take this microphone and just testify as to what the body of Christ means for you. This body, this broken cracker, what does it mean? How has it applied to your life? Anybody? And then I'm going to ask somebody also to talk about the blood. The body of Christ to me is something that I have never experienced until a year or two ago after I got saved. I had a man at at one of my men's groups meeting actually explain to me the covenant of this. It's extremely important and dangerous if you have not asked for forgiveness for your sins. Amen. Yeah. This broken cracker represents the body of Christ that was beaten for us, that was broken for us. That we then can go to him and take our broken life and let him put it back together. Amen. That's what it's about. Let's pray. Let's lift the cracker up and just look at it and just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience to the Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose to receive the penalty of my sin. Thank you for going the full way for me, that you didn't take a shortcut so that I have full forgiveness. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat at the cracker together. Amen. Somebody would like to talk about the blood. What does the blood mean to you? The blood of Jesus. Thanks, Don. The way I look at it, God, Jesus was 100% God. So then we think it was easy. Mm-hmm. But he was 100% man. Yeah. Which means the pain, the emotions, the physical issues, the relational issues were a hundred percent man. Amen. And therefore nothing I have ever been asked to handle, make decisions about, step out in, is beyond anything he ever had to do. Yeah. And I can rest in that, knowing that he did it already first. And then that's why I can do it. Amen. Amen. That's really good. Now go ahead, Sparky. I just want to say that when I was coming to salvation, I was really way off the track, of course. 
recognize that the significance of Jesus going to the full degree to die for us the way he died that if he wouldn't have done that then my consequence would have been significantly uncomparably worse for all eternity because I would have been damned to hell and destruction for all eternity Jesus died and he suffered for six hours that's a long time I'm not cutting that short but an eternity of suffering. If he wouldn't have done that, and here's even the more serious part, is that he's done it and he's extended it to us. And if we don't receive that, then we're going to be punished and suffer eternally because we rejected what he did for us. Isn't that amazing that God did that? And, for, and the sad part is many of us around us are rejecting it. And I would urge you, the love of Christ, to go out and to meet your friends, invite them, work, witness to them, live before them as living testimonies of God's grace and His mercy. Amen. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the blood and what it means to your people. Thank you for the testimonies here of what it means. And I know we all have one. Father, now receive our thanks and gratitude for choosing us and paying a penalty with your blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's drink together. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's sing that song Jackie's playing as an opportunity to worship him before we go to our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.
my King would die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to Father, we thank you once again for your mercy that we would receive it fully today, uncompromised, that we would receive it and accept it and repent and move and live and be pleasing in your sight and look forward to the day that you come and bring us all home. Be with us now as we go through our our days today. Protect us, keep us, bring us back again if you should tarry. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be blessed today as you go.